Hey everyone, this is George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School and the No Film School Podcast. Today, we have an interview with a director who has directed television and feature films for 20 years. Wait, let me think now. More than 20 years. Uh, This is a really interesting interview and filmmaker. And the main reason is we talk a lot on No Film School about directing and filmmaking from a technical standpoint. And when I say technical, I mean cameras, lighting, um, those sorts of things, that side of, of the process. We don't spend a lot of time talking to filmmakers or talking or writing about directing actors, which is a hugely important part of directing. In fact, it might be the only thing a director has complete input uh, control over. I mean, obviously they don't have complete control over it, but because the actor has control over it, but it's your domain as a filmmaker, as a director to talk to the actors. There isn't someone else on set who's going to do that with you. Whereas when you're shooting, you know, with your camera, you're going to have a camera department with lighting. You're going to have a gaffer and electrics, etc. This is a really big part of the process. And I'm just kind of teeing this up here because the filmmaker I spoke to here is an actor originally, and he transitioned from acting to directing because, and I'll let him explain it, but he got tired of sitting around on set napping while they were shooting. He wanted to be where the action was and that's directing. Um, But he's made a whole second career, which he thinks was better than his career as an actor, um, just out of that. And I think where that becomes interesting is, look, there's a lot of people out there who are actors or who started in theater or who maybe have some acting experience and they're not sure how that can apply to them as a filmmaker. There may be a lot of filmmakers who need to figure out how to become better working with actors, but this director really... um, this is his area. This is where he, he lives. And look, he's also just an amazing storyteller and a really funny guy uh, and a great guy. And you may know him from the show that he started on and directed, Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, his name is Jonathan Frakes. He, you may also know him from some memes online because he's, he's a meme unto himself. Uh, and he lives up to the hype. Let me tell you, he's awesome. And I'd have him back on this podcast anytime he wants to come back. He's got stories and he's absorbed knowledge from many of the great actors like Patrick Stewart, for example, but also from Gene Roddenberry, who created Star Trek and the showrunners on all these shows he's worked on and the writers on all these sci-fi series. And he's just you know, he's, he's been a sponge for all of that and he's done some amazing work and, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll let him take it away. Cause he's a, he's a joy. I guess the first thing I just wanted to ask you and get us sort of into this is you, what you have a unique path to directing from what I understand. And I want to hear it from you though. You sort of you became interested in it. Well, tell me, when did you first become interested in it? Because I actually don't know the answer to that question. I, I had uh, I had directed a few little things in college, and I thought it was a great gig. But once I was fortunate enough to have been cast 
on a television series as a regular, it became clear that you can only really take so many naps. Most of acting on TV or in a movie is waiting. As uh, Robert Mitchum allegedly is given credit for saying, I act for free, they pay me to wait. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. I haven't heard that. That's a great great line. At any rate, I I, I went... um, so you wanted more naps? <laughs> no, I had, I had what I'd had enough fucking naps. That's what it was. <laughs> I was napped out. I'm a, a bit of a control freak, and I like to have my hands in it. And I really enjoy the process. And I, I love being in the factory. I love to be on the floor. And um, so you I, were tired of being waiting, of it being in the trailer, waiting for them to get you back into the action. You wanted to be in the action the whole. I time. wanted to be in the action, and I could tell because I'd been, you know, I'd been. I think I was in my 30s when I got cast in, on Star Trek. So I had been, I'd been around sets and I knew that this was the best. And then you could see that, that the guy who is directing really has the, if he has a good team, it's the best job in the world. So I approached Rick Berman, who was the keeper of all things Star Trek at the time. And he said, well, you're going to have to shadow everyone. And I said, well, of course I'd be, I'd be happy to. And, and one thing led to another, the, the, the directors were, what General. year? Uh, what year? In the, so you directed a little bit in college. That was the question I was going to ask. Was I was kind of oh yeah, I directed, but nothing yeah. on film. I directed some some scenes and acting scenes and little pieces right. of, of play. No, where I went to Penn State, we had literally no film department in the seventies. Well, there weren't many film schools back then, right? I mean, at that time, there was the NYU, the USC, the UCLA, sort of that whole world. That when you went to theater school, they looked down that you to get on film. You had to go over to the communica- the communications department. So you were doing so you did some theater, but then you were acting. You had a career. You were on the show, and then at what season in the show did you say, "I'm tired of the naps and I want to get in the action"? And you just walked up to Rick Berman, who's the showrunner, EP of Star Trek, and said, "How do I start directing episodes?" Yes. How do how what how do I take the track? And then it became clear that because. I was at literally at Paramount University. The opportunity to learn was it, it was as it, it was fantastic. It was a dream. I knew a little bit about staging. I obviously knew something about the acting, and uh, I was always fascinated by the cinematography. I, I so what I didn't really know was the editing, and Rick was generous enough to send me into the editing room. But we had three editors on the show, and obviously. At least two of them wanted to be directors as well. Everybody wants to be a director, as I'm sure. Right. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of jobs in the industry, right? But that's the one, like you said, you aptly put it. Everybody's looking at that one. Because when it goes well, on television, the writer gets the credit and deserves the credit, certainly. But when you're, if you're doing a movie and it goes well, it's it's a, a Spielberg movie, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's a Tarantino Stone movie. film. Yeah, right. For better or for worse. Which yes. we can get to that part of the story later. I'll tell you how this went down at, at Paramount. I I spent a lot of time with Rick Holby and Bob Shear, and there were you know five or six directors that we had on the show as as regulars, and they were they were really helpful to me, and the editors were really really helpful to me. And then I started to go when I wasn't shooting. Rick let me into um, production meetings and pre-production meetings and visual effects meetings, which have been very useful to me in the, you know, moving on prop meetings, uh, design meetings with the production designer and the costume designer. 
concept meetings, all, all, the, all the things that are now part of my life, I was able to sit on the outskirts of and, and observe. And then, after, because we did 26 episodes a year, at the uh, each episode, we'd shoot for seven, we'd prep for seven, shoot for seven, and then edit for, you generally got, the directors get the cut for about four days, and they would start about three days after we finished. Then once the director's cut is turned in, it becomes the producer's cut, and then a, a producer and the writer of the episode have a chance to noodle with it. And then sometimes the network, but Paramount Studios was the network, so Rick was always the final judge. Then we move on to sound spotting, music spotting, and my favorite, going to the scoring session, because on Star Trek, we actually used a real orchestra, and Dennis McCarthy. and For every episode? 70 or 80 piece orchestra. I feel like I should know that, but I didn't know that. That's impressive. I feel like most shows. One of the last shows that did it. Right. I was going to say, most shows, that's not a common thing, right? That's. I'll tell you what, of it to this day is uh, Seth McFarlane on, on The Orville. He's a huge fan of keeping real music, musicians working. Well, he's a huge original Star Trek and TNG fan as well, right? So he's sort of consistent with the. Yeah. So fast forward, I, I shadowed for like two years. This was in the first season. I did all the rest of the first season, all the second season. And about midway through the third season, I was blessed with uh, a data show, which always was a plus because Brent is a genius. Yeah, what was the first episode of television you directed? It was called The Offspring. It was written by Renea Shriveria, who was, it was his spec script. He went on to be the producer on Deep Space Nine and then on Castle and then Carnival. And I mean, he's been, he so it was his first show. It was my first. Back then, with the spec script, you could still come with a spec script for the series itself. Exactly, and and, and they bought it, and then you got a job on that show. I think isn't that how Ron Moore also? That was because of Michael Pillar, who was very, very generous as a mentor to young writers. It sounds like mentorship was a big part of that uh, set, that that production, because they gave well, created an opportunity to build from within. After a certain, it was for the writers. I think, frankly. Rick would have been just as happy if I had gone away. <laughs> Francis, my wonderful wife, who I remember specifically one day I was, uh, I didn't have to shoot and I was at her house and I said, you know what? I don't think I'm going to go in today. She said, that's exactly what Rick is hoping you'll do. <laughs> the, day you don't, the, day, the day you don't show up to shadow or whatever you were scheduled to do today, will say he doesn't really give a shit. So I went and I continued to go. And then fast forward through all the episodes I got to do, when we were done and the movies came out, First Contact comes along. And, you know, that's Star Trek Eight. So Spielberg and uh, Zemeckis, are, are, they're not going to direct Star Trek Eight. So, and Sherry Lansing, God bless her, who ran Paramount at the time, gave Rick the the power to hire who he wanted. So I threw my hat in the ring. And one of the people who had to approve the director was Patrick Stewart, who I had, a, I must say, a pretty good relationship with to this day. You guys had worked together here and there. <laughs> it's really been a blessing. And I, I say it all the time. I'm so grateful that I learned another craft that, frankly, I think I'm better at than I ever was as an actor. And I certainly enjoy it well and you're pretty good as an actor don't sell yourself short. Good. no no i'm not i'm not trying to be falsely <laughs> no i mean i was wondering because you stepped right back into the role that what your 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 star trek role 
on Picard, which you also directed recently. It seemed to me, and I, I even thought at the time, all the directing, all the time in the action, as you said, on set, probably helped you stay in the mindset of how do you make a scene work from within or from yeah. without? Like, what does it require? That's what I meant to say about the editing. When I, after spending about 300 hours with the editors, I learned what the bare minimum because you get in trouble sometimes if you're 12 hours into the day and you're, you know, you've got eight pages to shoot and you've only got a couple of hours to get a scene. You need to know how quick and dirty you can get what you need in case you don't get, get the time to go back and. <laughs> so, you know I mean? so that leads me, I have to ask you a question. You have a nickname, apparently. Oh, yeah. Two Takes Frakes. Is that, <laughs> does it come from all those hours in the editing? You would think it did. But the, the real truth about Two Takes Frakes is this. When I finally got to direct um, a movie, First Contact, our producer, our line producer, who was representing Paramount, was a guy named Marty Hornstein. And uh, he was on the set with me. And I was, uh, I'd done a take with, I think with Patrick. And I, it was the first take and I printed it. And I said, um, I looked at the cameraman, I looked at Matt Leonetti, I looked at Patrick and I said, everybody okay? Let's print that, let's move on. And Marty Weinstein said, whoa, whoa, Frakes, just a minute. Let me explain something to you. When you work for a studio or this studio, you need to print two takes. <laughs> so the name implies that I work fast and shoot two takes or only need two takes. But in fact, it was from the lesson I learned while doing First Contact. There's a little inside no film school bullshit. Yeah, that that's a... <laughs> that's peeling back the curtain. I mean, this was probably, now I'm thinking first contact in the first things you were shooting. This was in a time when you would be checking the gate or do one for safety. You Still know. shooting on film. But the, yeah. the, the idea of checking the gate is, is absurd. <laughs> because if you're really going to check the gate or if, if you're really concerned about doing one for Lloyd's or all that bullshit, you need to change the mag or you need to change now the days you need to change the digital card. So, so okay, so let's go back to um, the features. You put your name in the ring for, for First Contact. Right. And First Contact was, um, and it's widely considered, it was a huge success at the time. It's what, one of the bigger successes of Star Trek films, and it's considered one of the best of the Star Trek films, and it really takes Star Trek to a different place than it had been at that point. It's, it's got a lot of action. It's dark. It puts Patrick Stewart, who's an incredible actor, as people know, in a really – I mean, it does, the movie does a lot, and I think it demonstrated – I think you this is perhaps where you were going earlier, but the, uh, the idea of the director gets to bask in the glory of that moment. Like, that movie was, is excellent, and you did a great job. And, and the movie, I think, um, does a lot for the franchise too, right? And so it must have been a big experience. Can you tell me about how, what it was like to jump into it, first of all, with the stakes of that movie and have such a big success? Well, first of all, as you know, the script is brilliant. It was Ron Moore and Brandon Braga. And it, it, was, it had everything. It was action, adventure. It had wonderful little sousson of comedy it was like a horror movie the guest cast was astounding with alfrey woodard and uh jamie cromwell and alice krieger it had it was really mine to fuck up it was so <laughs> but you didn't and that's the important thing right i didn't but and i'm always asked what was the difference between making a tv show and making a movie and the only difference really is you have a little you have more time and you have more money 
So definitely two takes. <laughs> and, you, and you have to print two takes, exactly. So you felt good about the material and, and you jump into shooting a feature film and you're familiar with this cast and this team. Did you take a lot of your team from the show? It was the best. It was the best movie I've ever made. It was the everything uh, after it. It was also the first. You never get anything like the first one. And it was, it, was a, it was a dream. I was home. I didn't have to go on the road. Star Trek is an extremely tricky thing because like, and I, and I want to hear what you have to say about, about actually working with Gene Roddenberry too, but the idea of, of making optimism dramatic is tricky. And a lot of the writers have talked about it. And I'm curious because you've directed so many iterations of it. There's so much pressure on someone coming into a franchise. We just, I interviewed a guy who's one of the showrunners on this animated series, uh, Lower Decks, that's coming soon with the, with the franchise. It's hard to step into the franchise and, and keep iterating, especially when there's the pressure to kind of have this positive worldview, right? I'm, I, I want to hear how you approach that and how you keep coming back to it. Were you talking to Mike? Yes. Yes, I was talking to Mike. Have you been involved with him on it at all? Maybe. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's exciting. I'm sure it was exciting for him. Um, but yeah, we were talking, me and we were talking about his other show and we were talking about how hard it is to step into Star Trek and do it right. And, you know, he's a fan and you, you're a part of the universe, but writers have talked a lot about it. You had exposure to Roddenberry in the beginning. Is it difficult to kind of, and you've continued other franchises, like you've worked in other franchises aside from just this one, but that's a big part of the, of the landscape today creatively. What's it, what are the challenges and, and how do you do it? That's a great question. I I find that um, because I started on Next Gen and I was sort of uh, in deep in the in the encampment of the canon of that show and the relationships. Uh, for instance, Marina and uh, who just called. Yes, you remember in the beginning of Next Gen, there was a story that Riker and Troy had been lovers on another ship and had worked together before. And yes. That story mysteriously disappeared from the writers because they wanted us conveniently to be available to have, you know, affairs with aliens. Was it in, was it like, <laughs> which of which you had many, was it in the Bible <laughs> of the show? It was part of the pilot of the show. And I thought that it was a significant part of our characters and they selectively let it go by the wayside. And Marina and I made a very, very conscious effort to maintain that relationship that we really were, huh. we were in love with each other, that we cared about each other. We had an old, uh, deep relationship in spite of what we were doing. We always felt that because we kept that alive, it informed how we dealt with each other, it informed how we dealt with others, and it informed how we reacted in, in scenes that we were in together with the, with the company. We took great pride in holding on to that relationship and are convinced that when it resurfaced as a story point in, in Nemesis, that it was easy for an audience to accept that because we they, they did believe that we had not forgotten, even though many of the writers conveniently had. <laughs> yeah, no, certainly. It's certainly been – there's no question that that, that, that that that's true and comes across. So you're saying that sort of like that – being so close to what the core of it was in a way being a creative partner in it from that early stage has made it easier to carry that torch as you step into various versions. Right. And I found 
going to work on Discovery, which, first of all, became my sort of new home show in terms of where I and I did I finished three of them uh, this year. But that cast, in addition to reminding me so much of our cast, was also very curious about what it meant because I kept trying to express to them when they were very curious about what it was going to be like to be part of this family. And I assured them all that their lives were about to change. But what was also true was that the audience, as they were very skeptical about Next Gen back in the, uh, in the 80s, they, they wanted Kirk, Spock, and Bones. They really didn't want a bald English captain with a French name. And, and, and they were reluctant, and they were reticent, and they were somewhat, sometimes hostile. <laughs> as fans can be. They were skeptical. And then fast forward and Paramount, for better or for worse, went to the well so often that we had Next Gen and we had Voyager and we had Deep Throat Dine and we had Enterprise. And then (laughs) we closed down and wisely, there was nothing. And then JJ relaunched the franchise, I thought, spectacularly with a cast, um, Zach and and Pine and Carl Urban and... uh, they that cast worked. People really liked that cast. Now Discovery is cast, and the audience is again skeptical. We have a new Star Trek we have to learn about. We have to fall in love with. We want to embrace. We don't know what it's going to be like, and that's I think how Discovery. And in addition to that, the audience now has to pay to watch Star Trek, which they've been getting free for free for fifty fucking years. <laughs> yes, that's a that's but but. At the same time, I feel like audiences are starting to accept that that's sort of the way a lot of the, with all these various streaming services. And I'm curious what that's like as a director. Does it, does it factor into the work on your end at all? Like the decision-making and the, there's so many platforms. It seems like, you know, okay, you started directing when there were not very many channels. As I said, we used to do 26 a year and now we do 10 or 13. Right. Yeah. And I imagine the change of how many things come at you as a director, it, it must be like, you know, there, there was a time when, you know, three networks, and obviously Star Trek was after that. But um, this is, I mean, Star Trek TNG was after that. Yeah. But there are so many places that content, as we call it now, lives, that these things like Discovery, it's like, it, it almost creates... I guess what I'm getting at, a space for it. It creates a space for a niche. And this is a big niche because it's a huge franchise. But do you know what I mean? I think they were less reluctant now that they can get Picard on the same channel. But I, at the time, it was uh, it was the spinoff of um, was the uh, CBS. All oh, Access. right, 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 right. Yes, yes. It was another, it helped to launch. Yeah, every show, every one of these streaming services has like kind of a flagship. Right. Their flagship was meant to be Discovery. Brian Fuller was developing it, and uh, it became clear that they were not going to be ready. And Les Moonves said, yes, you are going to be ready. He said, no, you're <laughs> not going to be ready. And they weren't ready, and they changed hands, and it was a very bumpy early road. But that's before my time and not my uh, – not what we're gonna. Not what we're here to talk about. Right, but you've weathered. I mean, obviously, you're familiar with the, the hurry up and wait reality of working in this industry behind the camera on set, and you're familiar with that process, and you've seen mm-hmm. you know things come and go. And but yeah, I mean, I'm curious when you step on a set now for Discovery or for mm-hmm. the card, 
or any of the shows. I mean, I know there's tons of shows not Star Trek related that you've directed um, and movies. It's it's changed tremendously. Do you approach it the same way you always have? And how do you approach it? I approach it the way Bob Justman, who was Roddenberry's producer, who from the original series, who was on our show in the beginning. And he was a wonderful help to me. He said, always show up with a shot list, which I always do to this day. Always have a plan. Don't be afraid to veer from the plan. And that most of your work is done in prep, which is all those adages are absolutely true. And you can smell a director who doesn't have a plan when he walks on. You can feel it. He says, well, why don't we just get it on his feet? You know what? (laughs) What you want to do is say, you're here, you're here, you're here, unless you guys have a better fucking idea. Now let's go. Let's hear it. it." (laughs) You know. So I'm I'm starting to wonder if having played, you know, a commander in the middle of of various high-stakes scenarios – informed your ability to direct and stay in the midst of the action and have a commanding presence. Do you see what the connection? What an interesting observation. I've never heard anybody. <laughs> no, I'm not so I'm the, am I the first one? <laughs> no, that makes perfect sense. Because one of the things that Patrick and I have always said about our characters, we wish we were as cool on, in the clutch, um, sort of honorable, reliable, clear thinking, prepared, honest, all the qualities that both Picard and Riker have, if we had them, we would be better men, you know? Mm. And uh, you make a really good point because I have played, I'm not Commander Riker, and I'm and really not like Commander like Riker, but I, I, I like him. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that kind of goes back to what I was saying a little bit about Roddenberry, which is that I think some of those aspirational characters or stories, things we want that we strive to be more like, or we hope we can, you know, the world right now is in a, is in a sad place. It's in a tortured place. Um, and stories about people who stay calm or leaders who we can rely on. These are very comforting things, you know, at any time. We wish we had one now. Yes, exactly. It would be nice. So, you know, a set, I mean, we know in our world, in the community of filmmaking, a set can be a very chaotic, scary place. Yes. You want to know that the person running the show, be it the director, but also sometimes a first AD. You know, Riker was kind of like a first AD sometimes, right? Yeah. Uh huh. You know, somebody who can kind of inspire and lead, but also show you show you where you want to, you know, that that you're in good hands. And it sounds like with Discovery, you you did that a little. But did anybody have that? It sounds like Bob Justman did on TNG. Did and some of those the editors and the directors you were shadowing. Um, you know, we always say at no film school, it's best to get out there and do to learn. I mean, it's called no film school, but, but it's best if you're, if you can be connected to process and learn that way and not just learn by, you know, being divorced from it in a classroom setting, so to speak, who were the mentors aside from the ones you mentioned? Were there other figures like that in the beginning? Well, I had three teachers at Penn state who all taught different styles. One was named Richard Edelman, one was named Manuel Duque, and one was named Archie Smith. And Archie Smith was from the Actors Studio in New York, the famous Brando Actors Studio. Yeah. And um, Richard Edelman was from Stella Adler, which is another school of acting. And Manuel Duque was from the Neighborhood Playhouse, which was a third. Those three guys had technique, the way you broke a scene down the importance of where the beats are, 
playing an action verb? What are the intentions? What do you want when you come in? Where have you been before you got here? Where are you going? All those simple acting questions I used still as a director when I break down a script. So I want to make sure that the emotional, the important emotional beat in this scene is what? You want to make sure you get a close-up for that. Or does that work as a 50-50? Or does that, do you need it to connect to the person they're thinking about? So when you're planning your shot list, it's really based on, on story. So you break it down from the inside. Yeah, exactly. And then that informs, you know, nowadays, especially, you know, there's so much access to the tools. So our readers and our community loves all the gear, the cameras, the lenses, and I, and, and the editing software, and you can do so much, but approaching it from the perspective of what makes the story tick for a performer is something that I think more people should consider. I, I couldn't agree more. You know whose name I didn't mention who was a huge influence on me, who did probably more episodes than anybody? It was a guy named Cliff Bowl, who was a, he must have done hundreds of episodes of television. And we had a guy, a young guy named Rob Bowman, who went on to do a lot of big AB. He was a showrunner on, on Castle. He was, he was wonderful and a, and a great help. Do you feel like you're so you're having been an actor and learned the three schools of act uh, those three school acting schools informing how you broke down a scene and that's part of how you make a shot list is you start thinking about the scene from that standpoint uh, do you find that you're an actor's director would you say that or do you or do you try to give equal focus to everything and just starting there I I, I start there but I think I'm an actor's director because I speak actor and and I. I know how I liked to be treated by a director and that's how I treat my actors. Also, you find you have shorthand with, I mean, my relationship with Patrick, I can be walking up to him and he'll say, I know. <laughs> and, and sometimes he'll say to me, I need to think faster. Right. And I said, yeah. Or some actors, uh, the wonderful Noah Wiley, who I've been work, I've worked a lot with. He, I walk over to him. He says, that sucked. Right. I got it. I got it. Go ahead. I got it. Yeah, I know. I, I know what you need. <laughs> <laughs> well, you on librarians, right? So you build that when you get the opportunity to do uh, multiple things with someone. And-, and that relationship is so bad. There's no value. There's no relationship better than the, I have it with Sonequa. The, right. The relationship Discovery, between the director yeah. and number one is essential because it's really number one show and the cinematographer in the first AD, it's their set. And then you're a guest as a director. And then when mm. you become a regular director on a show, they either look forward to having you back or, <laughs> or they dread having you back or they adjust. Did their- you guys, uh, as an actor, you know what it's like to be on the dread side of some of those? So you remember? Um, oh, yeah. With directors? Are you talking about... Oh, God. Did you go away again? Uh, we had another one of our little... Come back. Come back to me. Hear my voice where you are, in a train, in a car, anywhere that you are, come back to me. George, please. George. Oh, George. Oh, I'm here. Sorry. You were talking about the shorthand and what you had on Discovery and talking about being, you know, the, 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 the guest on the set, the director people dread or the ones people look forward to. I wanted to ask about that. When it comes to working on television, 
you know, you mentioned that it's a writer's medium and a lot of people say that and people talk about it being we're in kind of a golden age of television right now. And there's a lot of great stuff. Um, but as a, as a director, um, do you try, is it hard to meld yourself into what has come before and do your job and, and do it well and, and, and not step, you know, it feels like a delicate thing. Like it's almost like a surgery, right? Well, I, my responsibility or one's responsibility is to make the best version of that show that you can. And I always use as an example doing um, uh, Castle versus doing Falling Skies. Castle, Rob Bowman, who I just mentioned, you show up during prep, they say, don't waste anybody's time with a multi-stop moving master. We will never use it. And when we're in coverage, you get me three sizes. You get a cowboy, you get a close-up, and you get an extreme close-up on both actors for every line they say. Mm-hmm. Cut to to um, Falling Skies, which was another world altogether, again with Noah Wiley. The marching orders from the producing director and the writers is it's meant to be shot like documentary war footage. All handheld, run around, chase the actors around, don't feel like you have to have every line on cam- camera, look at what you think is interesting, try to go over and get a reaction to someone and then come back to the person talking, stay in a take as long as you can. So when you're watching a show, you recognize generally the style of the show. And Discovery, we are encouraged to shoot to thrill. So Alatunde and I have a very healthy competitive relationship in terms of, uh, you know, creating wonders. I mean, you always have to cover the wonders, obviously. Just for the interest of like our the no film school world, the specifics of what you're talking about going into each show are fascinating. Like I could ask you about them forever, but like, so you're saying though, with each one, they kind of have a here's the visual grammar, exactly, and, and you got to fit into it. Yep. Um, and, and, and you're cra- and you if you want to get asked back, you don't try to reinvent the fucking wheel. You you do the best. You make the best wheel out of this episode that you can. You hit your marks, right? You do. Like, well, there, there's some of that, you know, hit it and spit it approach. But yeah. I, I brought Discovery up because we really, they do give you all the toys and you are encouraged to make uh, cinematic visual choices. It's but, fun though. You say shoot to thrill. Is that written down somewhere when you show up? Do they that, say like. I stole that from um, uh, Robbie Duncan McNeil. That's his approach. Oh, I okay. He's another, so yeah, that's another thing that we could talk about too. I could go on for a while, but there's a lot of Star Trek, like you set a certain, like now there's a lot of Star Trek actors who transitioned into into directing episodic. He's one of them. He's a great, he's a producing director. He works all the time. LeVar is a great director. Roxanne Dawson's a great director. And they, and, and are you, do they look to you as sort of like the guy who, who crossed over? I, I I opened the door, certainly. And, do the uh, do the showrunners blame you that <laughs> all these actors started asking them to direct? Well, you know, everybody wants to, and then some people do better than others. Some people, I mean, Patrick doesn't really, he did it and didn't really enjoy it. Yes. I'm, I, I feel like I've, I've read or heard that before. Yeah. You guys have such a great tandem. Like, it seems like you really bring something out when you're directing him. You get to learn a lot about different kinds of filmmaking, even to this day, because every show you're on, they're like, hey, we want you to do it this way. Yeah. What? What can you advise for people coming up? There's obviously a lot of ways you can go out and shoot things, but what's the best way to learn and get started? Like, what would you do today if you were in that same spot where you said, I want to get into that seat on set? 
and not be taking naps in my trailer, which a lot of people would love to do that too. Let's be honest. <laughs> well, I've, um, there is no better opportunity than when you're on a television show as an actor. And uh, Anthony Rapp has been shadowing me, and I think he's going to turn into a really good director, the guy who plays um, head of engineering on... Uh, Discovery. Yeah. I don't know much about indie, the indie world, but there certainly is what you, what you advise people, which is to do it, is exactly... One of the three men I mentioned earlier, uh, Richard Edelman and Manuel Decay and Archie Smith... Manuel used to say, no, no, we're going to, you know, stay in class. Richard and Archie both believed you should say yes to anything. You want to do a, somebody asks you to do a scene, say yes. Somebody asks you to be in this play, you say yes. And I, I am really a strong believer in that approach, that the doing is, is the best way to learn. Yeah. And also by being, you know, it's an old, it's the truth at any job. Um, you learn from your mistakes and you have to feel comfortable enough and unafraid enough if your set is is that way you can make mistakes and sometimes the mistakes are magic and sometimes they're not <laughs> yes well but then yeah and those are the ones you learn from yeah i mean and you also i feel like you you kind of gave an answer earlier too to this question before when you said shadowing and they wanted you to not show up or they were hoping you wouldn't show up so they could close the door on it. But the shadowing and the persistence to learn that way. Yeah, but you have to get into I mean, there are programs now. It's a, yeah. not a great time to be an old white guy. Fox has a program. NBC has a program. And they are. it's geared to address the incredible in, inequality in the diversity of the DGA, which is true of the WGA. And, and it, it needs to be rebalanced, and it is beginning to be. Yes. But as a result, it is, uh, you know, well, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 absolutely. I mean, there's, that's, that's part of the process and it's part of getting fresh perspectives, you know, and finding ways. But I mean, the good news is people can grab stuff and start creating and, and put their ideas out there um, and they can get around other people who are doing that too. So there's a lot of opportunity, but, um, you know, you've, You've been doing this. You've been at it for a while, and you've you've seen the the industry really grow and change. And, and you've obviously been around some uh, tremendous talents and craftspeople. So it's great to get your input and insight, and and it's it's been fun. Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. You're you're uh, you're a good interview, man. I I really enjoyed. Oh, it. thank you. That's a huge compliment. We may reach out again uh, if if you if you guys are interested, because I feel like you have a lot of insights um, about the actual craft. And nobody likes to talk about myself more than me. <laughs> well, thank, you, you. thank you again. Okay, man. Bye. So thanks for listening. Uh, that was obviously thrilling for me. I, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, Jonathan Frakes is a, is a true original and a one-of-a-kind guy. Um, and if you want to know more about directing actors, we have a lot of good stuff on nofilmschool.com. The do's and don'ts of directing actors according to actors is a post we have. Um, we have a lot of other good stuff um, about it, such as like directing actors, common conflicts, and how to avoid them. Um, but I also want to let everybody know if you don't know already, we have a new ebook on nofilmschool.com how to write a screenplay during quarantine. It's completely free. It's a hundred pages. It's filled with examples, plus infographics, 
Plus, it takes you through a 10-week process of how you can write a screenplay, um, including some weeks you get off, cheat weeks. Uh, and you will finish your script by the end of this thing. We have done so much work researching and writing about screenwriting. It's written by our own Jason Hellerman, who is a working screenwriter and has been for years. Uh, but this is a really good resource. And all you have to do is sign up for the newsletter to get it. So go to nofilmschool.com, go to how to write a screenplay during quarantine and get this ebook. And obviously keep listening to the podcast and rate, subscribe, like us and let us know what you thought. And if you have any questions for me or for Jonathan Frakes, because I'll, I'll forward them along to him. Thanks again. 